Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show's Icon Series. I am Louise Salas, and typically, I am your host. But in this limited series, I'm handing over the reins to historian John Taylor Chapman as he takes us on a journey through history. So sit back, grab a cocktail, and enjoy. Yes, I'm your host, John Taylor Chapman, and indeed, I'm going to take you on a trip through time to explore African and African-American cultural heritage, history, and legacy. This is no ordinary history class, not even close. Each week, I will be joined by some highly respected historians and amazing storytellers, so I promise you this, our conversations will be lively and empowering. So let's get started, shall we? In the discussions of modern-day civil rights, many of us know the very big names. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, John Lewis, and the like. But when you dig down into the local history, there are many unnamed individuals and groups that have made just as much of an impact locally in making change. Today, we're going to go back into the 1960s to tell the story of Alexandria's Secret Seven. We will hear about who the Secret Seven were and what they did from one of the people that knows the impact they made firsthand. Please welcome to the show Mrs. Lillian Stanton-Patterson, a lifelong Alexandrian, educator, historian, living legend, and the wife of Edward Patterson, a member of the Secret Seven. Welcome, Mrs. Patterson. Thank you. So to begin with, let's talk a little bit about your history here in Alexandria. Again, you're a fourth generation. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Fourth generation, that means that uh, that goes back to my great, great grandmother. This grandmother that I know of was born toward the end of the Civil War. And from what I understand, she had four brothers, all of whom were sold. So she was never able to uh, contact them, uh, make contact with them again. Mm. Uh, from time to time, she would run into people that she would see, and she would say, they look like they belong to my family, but mm. we never knew. Okay. Uh, and then on the other side of the fence, my father's people, uh, the first person that came to this country back in the late 1790s was named Nace Stanton. Mm -hmm. uh, he was bought by a family down in the Orange County area. Mm -hmm. uh, he had one son whose name was Garland, but he got sold and Garland stayed here. Uh, stayed in that area. And that son had three sons. And one of those three sons uh, moved to Leesburg, Virginia. And that son had my father. And then my father had seven children. And he I don't know how he met my mother. Uh, my grandfather was from Leesburg, Virginia, as was my father. Maybe they met there, I don't know. But uh, he came to Alexandria in 1926. And that was the year that he and my mother got married. Uh, 
they had seven children. My mother was an only child. Her mother was an only child. And I used to hear my grandmother say, poor Esther and all those children, because there were seven of us. And among the seven of us, there were 20-some 20 children. And then all the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Um, Dr. Durant, who uh, came to Alexandria uh, in the late 20s, uh, was the doctor who delivered children here. And my understanding from my parents was that I was his first delivery oh, wow. when he came to Alexandria. Uh, that was in 1927. Okay. <laughs> um, I was born on June the 22nd. That also happened to be my father's birthday. And that was also mother and daddy's wedding anniversary. So June 22nd was a really big day mm -hmm. in our family. But we, we, we had a big family. We had a good time. And unlike most children, we didn't have a lot of work to do in the house. I guess with seven children, my mother didn't know what to do with them, so she said, go out and play. And that's what we did. We played, and other kids were in the house working. Um, but we had a good time, and dinner time was really fun because we had a huge table, and we would sit at the table for the longest kind of time uh, at dinner. So that, that was a big event in our house. Thank you for telling that, that family history. Um, let's talk a little bit more about um, Mr. Patterson and the-, the My the, husband. The, yes, and the, 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 what he got into. He came, he came to Alexandria in 1940. He taught at a couple of other places before then. He came here to teach music. He was the band director. Um, he also taught a class, a civics class that I was in. And uh, he was a nice teacher. I like, there were three teachers that I really liked. They were all men, Reverend Atkins, Mr. Holland, and Mr. Patterson. Oh, wow. Really nice people. The women I had a little problem with. <laughs> uh, um, I don't feel like I knew him until after I got out of college. Like I said, he was the band director. And back in those days, uh, those were days of segregation. And Parker Gray did not get the supplies and things that it needed. Uh, band uniforms, band uniforms, and band uh, uh, instruments, they were not provided by the system. Mm. Uh, parents worked for them and whatnot. Um, and there was this organization that was formed called the Parker Gray Campaigners, PG mm -hmm. Campaigners. Mm -hmm. And they formed to uh, raise money to buy band uniforms. And one of my girlfriends was in it uh, when I got home from college. And, uh, and so she said, come on and join. I said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. She said, oh, come on, you won't have anything else to do. So I joined, and uh, Mr. Patterson was 
uh, in the group, and we got to be friends, and uh, I went away to work. I uh, went to Pensacola, Florida. I was a Girl Scout uh, professional, and uh, I said, I'm going away and let him decide what he wants to do. And I stayed away a couple of years. Uh, we couldn't, kept contact through the time, and he said he let me, he let me go away <laughs> so I could decide what to do. I said, hey, we wasted two and a half years. But I came back here to get married. Like I got back on Sunday and the wedding was on Wednesday. Oh. So I did all the planning while I was away. And we had a very nice life because he was a very nice person. Uh, he, did you ever know him? Or was he before your time? Before my time. He was before your time. But he was a very nice person. Mm -hmm. People liked him. And he was a part of the Secret Seven. Mm -hmm. There were, actually there were eight people, not mm -hmm. seven. Okay. And there was a, a man in the group uh, somewhere nearby. He was not a part of the group. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how he got connected. They always thought he was he was a, not a spy, but an informant. Yeah, and uh, he he called them the Secret Seven. You know how are you uh, you know if you're asking people in the community how are you gonna let these seven people tell you what to do? Hmm. But there were eight people besides my husband. There was. Uh, Nelson Green, uh, Melvin Miller, uh, Robert Terrell, James Anderson, um, Father John Davis. Did you ever know him? I did not, no. He was Episcopal. Okay. Um, Marion Johnson, Two Days. Okay. Lawrence and Ferdinand Day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, each of them had expertise in some manner. My husband was the education man. Okay. They didn't have an official leader. Okay. Uh, they all, uh, they all had something to offer. Uh, but Melvin Miller was the official spokesman for the group. Mm. What they did was to look at issues and work them out and they would do a position paper and pass it out through the neighborhood. Uh, they talked to all of the politicians that were running for office and questioned them and uh, then passed their information along to various people. And they met at no regular time. From your vantage point for your, for your husband, what was what was the calling to get involved with this group of men? They were they were all friends. Okay. And they uh, they saw the need to make sure that information about uh, various issues was presented to people so they would know what was going on, how to vote, and whatnot. And how did how did people within the African-American community kind of take it? And I think you just mentioned this. How did people see it as this small group of men trying to organize 
everybody else? Was there was there backlash? Was there other people in the community that said, you know, you don't speak for me? I didn't hear that. Okay. I didn't hear that. Uh, and there was no formal organization of anything. Okay. Uh, like I said, they would do a position paper and put it out. And they talked about all kinds of issues. Yeah. Uh, housing mm -hmm. and education, politics, just general life. Now, and I've I've had the opportunity to read some of those position papers, and one of the one of the kind of general reports that they they did about the city at that time, especially for the African American community, um, and you know, it's interesting to see what stuff um, moved forward mm -hmm. and what stuff kind of uh, kind of didn't didn't move forward as fast. Um, you know, in the in the realm of education, uh, where your husband was working, I mean, did you do you did you see kind of some of the change that he was pushing um, happen in the city? Well, one of the things they helped get uh, Ira Robinson uh, elected as uh, a city councilman. Yeah, for our for our listeners, Ira Robinson is is going to be Alexandria's first African American. City council member since reconstruction in this in in that century. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was extremely, extremely instrumental right. getting him getting him elected for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then after that, there was uh, Nelson Green. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. He served. So his yeah, that made they, they made a difference because they they. Uh, put information out there for people to uh, to help them make their choices. Right. Yeah. It's good. No, I, I read um, particularly on on some of the the reports they had about um, city employment. Um, one of the one of the, the chapters of one of their reports was about at that time the lack of African Americans involved and the city as employees, whether it be uh, general employees for the government or, you know, police officers or firefighters or things of that nature. Um, and it's interesting to see uh, individuals get hired kind of after that as well. That took a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, because most people did uh, menial things. Mm -hmm. There were very few people here in Alexandria that were, there, there, were, there were a few doctors, uh, a few lawyers, and a few teachers. And most of the teachers didn't live in, Ale were not from Alexandria. It took a long time for Alexandrians to get to be uh, teachers here for some unknown reason. Uh, I used to substitute. Okay. But that was, yeah. That was the 50s, 60s, I substituted. Uh, but most of the teachers came from out of town. Uh, there, there were very few lawyers here and uh, very few doctors, and the doctors couldn't practice in the mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, my children were born in Washington because uh, my doctor could not practice at the Alexandria Hospital. 
but I don't know that the Secret Seven had anything to do with changing that. Mm -hmm. um, they worked more on politics, I believe. Yeah. Um, and some of them were involved with the uh, uh, Human Relations Council, which came along during uh, the desegregating years. Uh, that was a, a mixed group of uh, African-Americans and white people uh, who were trying to ease uh, desegregation here in Alexandria. Uh, in my neighborhood, there was, uh, we worked with the uh, theologians from a seminary across the street from us uh, to set up a tutoring program. Uh, for children in that area. Uh, and there were other uh, programs, tutoring programs further downtown to help with, to help ease desegregation. Uh, they, they felt that our kids didn't know enough to mm -hmm. go to school with white kids, so we had to have special help. Not mm -hmm. true, but that was what they thought. Right. So that we uh, had tutoring programs. Um, the Secret Seven was also involved in our neighborhood. Uh, I live now in the seminary section of Alexandria. Um, back when uh, Alexandria was forced to segregate, desegregate, um, there were three high schools, Parker Gray, G.W., and Hammond, and they couldn't close Hammond. They couldn't close G.W. Those were sacred cows, but they closed Parker Gray, the high school. They made it a middle school. Um, they had to find a place, do something for a school, so they picked this area of seminary where I live now to uh, create a school for the entire city. One public high school, T.C. Williams, and they took the land by eminent domain. Now, Marion Johnson, who was in the Secret Seven, lived in the neighborhood, and they created a civic association uh, and he was the president. And they held it, uh, the building of that school up for a few years while they negotiated with that neighborhood. Uh, and they ended up giving part of the neighborhood back to the community. And they built uh, 27 houses there. Um, T.C. Williams was the superintendent of schools. He retired, but um, to add insult to injury, they named the school after him, who, and he was one of the biggest segregationists in, in town. They, uh, he did not want desegregation, and he fought it as far as he could, but uh, the city had to, so they picked this black community to destroy and build a school. Mm -hmm. And the Secret Seven worked with the community to help them 
get their home, get some homes put back in there. There were like 40 or 50 homes that they destroyed. And uh, they built, I believe, about 27, 29 homes. By the time they built those homes, uh, many of the people that had lived in the neighborhood had found uh, other places to live, which is how I happened to move into that community. But that community dates back to the uh, 1800s. And uh, it's changing now, the interesting thing. White people never lived in that community, but uh, as the older people pass away, uh, younger people stay there and their kids grow up and out, and then they sell the property. And everybody's buying them except African-Americans. So it's a changing community, like the entire city. Right. You know, Alexandria yeah. doesn't even have uh, a physical black community anymore. Mm -hmm. Everybody lives everywhere. That does not mean there's not a black community here because we've got more African-Americans here now than we've ever had. When I was growing up, there were like 10, 12 percent mm. African-Americans and gradually it has gotten up to now where it's in the mid-20s. Mm -hmm. So some of the, um, as I've grown up here in, in the city, I've come to know a couple of, you know, certain members of, of the Secret Seven, not knowing they were members of the Secret Seven until much later. Um, you know, what, what do you remember about um, some of the folks that have passed away, like a Melvin Miller or a Ferdinand Day, and kind of how they operated as individuals of the Secret Seven or, or what they did individually? Uh, Melvin was an attorney, and he, he helped people with the sit-ins, you know, because there were some sit-ins here, really? and uh, he was their attorney. Yeah. He was a, a, a source of information for everybody. You could go to him, and he would uh, give you advice. Sometimes he wouldn't even charge you for it. Most of the time, he wouldn't. <laughs> At least, that's what I noticed. Right. <laughs> uh, the days... Uh, Ferdinand Day was really uh, active in the community. He, he, uh, he was a native of Alexandria. He and his brother were natives. And, uh, you know, there's a school name for Ferdinand because of all the things that he did in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, he was the first African-American chairman of a school board in the state of Virginia as well. He was the first African-American from Alexandria, I mean, Alexandria appointed to the school board. Mm, okay. Right? Mm -hmm. wow. And first school board chairman here. That's right. Yeah. A great source of information. Yeah. Ferdinand Day was. And his daughter Gwen is too. And as well as uh, Ferdinand, uh, Melvin's daughter, Erica. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So as a wife um, of somebody that seems to be that active in the community, how does that affect the home life? You know, you know uh, let me say this. From what I've heard and read about some of the individuals working in, particularly in the deeper South, in the civil rights movement, um, there was always concern for 
the safety of their family as they did that work. Um, was there ever any concern like that? No, we did not run into anything. Okay. Uh, it was, it was calm. Good. It was calm. Uh, the only time that um, anybody felt threatened, and I don't know if that's the right word or not, uh, during those early desegregating years, uh, there were lots of there was lots of tension, and there was disruption disruption in the schools. Uh, my husband, by this time, had been he'd been a teaching assistant principal at uh, Parker Gray High School, and then he was a principal of Parker Gray Middle School when it opened as a middle school. And after a couple of years, he became director of student relations and staff activities in central administration. And that was when there was lots of uh, trouble going on in the school. So he was like a troubleshooter. Okay. Uh, and you listen to my daughter, you know, she would wonder, why does my husband have to be involved in all of this sort of stuff? And I think she felt afraid during during that time. Mm. But uh, as far as threats to our lives and whatnot, uh, they did not come over the telephone to us. And if my husband got in, he didn't let us know about it. And I don't think he did. Okay, good. Uh, you noted, and it's, it's well noted, that Alexandria has uh, seen tremendous change over the, the, the recent decades. Um, and, and from what we've seen, and you noted this as well, you know, s certain individuals such as a Ferdinand Day have gotten uh, the accolades by the community. Um, what, is it, what does it mean today, in your, in your opinion, for people to recognize the Secret Seven and what they meant to the city back then and even now? Well, you know, Back then, they were just that. They were Secret Seven. And I did not think of them as an exalted group at the time. Mm -hmm. I just thought of them as seven friends mm -hmm. uh, working in the community. Uh, it was in later years that people began to talk about the Secret Seven. And by then, many of them had passed. Mm. Mm -hmm. So for our, our listeners, I think the key themes, the key points out of our conversation are a couple things that I, I take away, and I'd love to kind of hear your takeaways as well. That anybody can get out and help. Mm. Uh, and one person can make a difference. So you get your one self out and you bring along somebody else. Everybody can make a difference. And you know, you get out and do things and somebody else will think you're doing a whole bunch. You, you're just doing what you think is right. Mm -hmm. And somebody else will think, boy, she's really working hard. You don't feel like you're working hard. You feel like you're just 
doing what you should be doing. That's fine. I, I listen, you know, I look at what people write about me, and I, I, I was on lots of boards, and I was just doing it. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, I didn't know you were doing so much. And I'm thinking, I'm not doing that much, but you write it down, and I guess that's what it looks like. Yeah. Which means that sometimes people give you credit for knowing more than you, more than you really know. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But no, this has been a, a joy to talk about this with you um, and hear from your perspective about uh, the Secret Seven, uh, not only your history, but the Secret Seven. And also, I think I, I'm, I appreciate how you've kind of put that takeaway um, out there that that it doesn't take a whole army to create change. It takes that one dedicated person. And it doesn't hurt if you have two or three or four or seven of them all kind of working in, in concert with each other uh, to make that change. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that in history in general, we've seen that on a larger scale, but I think a lot of us and a lot of folks um, in our different communities forget that they have local folks that are out there working on a regular basis and have been uh, to get our communities to where they are. Uh, and so I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It has been a pleasure and an honor to hear this story. Um, so thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you. And speaking of historic Alexandria, we are here in the heart of Old Town Alexandria at King's Ransom, Old Town's best spot to talk history and enjoy handcrafted cocktails. And fortunately for us on this episode, owner and master barkeep John Schott crafted a delicious smoked old fashioned. So to find this recipe and some of John's expert tips and tricks, or to find out how you can join one of John Chapman's manumission black history guided walking tours, head over to designateddrinker.show. That's designateddrinker.show. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.